Hey everybody, welcome to Therapy for Humans, the podcast where if you're not careful, you might just pick up some tips on how to survive as a more or less psychologically intact human in the modern world. My name is Rowan, and I'll be your host. What's up, people? Episode 15, Therapy for Humans. Thanks for joining us. Um, so I had something come up the other day that I thought was worth uh, chatting about. So a friend told me about some annual inspections that they have at their workplace, and they get dinged if they have stains on their ceiling tiles. So they make sure they replace them before the inspection, and then it's fine. But what caught my attention is that they don't investigate the cause of the stains, nor are they required to by the inspectors. So what's happening here is that the signs of a problem are prohibited, but the problem is not. So as long as everything appears to be okay, that's really all that matters. So being who I am, I started thinking about this in terms of mental health and not just serious issues, but in everyday interactions, you know, like, Hey, Joe, how are you? Good. Susan, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. So we have these conversations multiple times a day, right? But how often are we totally full of shit? How often are they full of shit? Do we really want to know how that person is? Or is it just an expected greeting before we move on with our day? So I've talked about this before. Um, I have a couple of clients and one in particular who really kind of leans in and asks how I'm doing. And if they don't initially believe my answer, they'll ask again. And often I get caught doing that. Like, oh, yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> and maybe it's not all good. Um, and so while I do <clears throat> need to maintain some boundaries with my clients in terms of sharing personal information, I appreciate their willingness to press for authenticity. And generally I'll honor that by, by being real with them. Um, but that's the exception. And so most of the time we meet people throughout the day, we just lie our asses off when we're asked about how we're doing. And I'd love to see a shift maybe in the greetings where we don't ask if we don't want a real answer. Maybe we could just say, what's new or good to see you or the ever popular, what up dog? But if we could reserve the, how are you for times when we actually want to know, we might start getting more authentic answers. So then I started thinking about kind of where else do we find this thing where we really just want to name everything as okay, even when, or especially when sometimes it's just not okay. And I see this a lot in family dynamics when one or more people in a family will refuse to admit there's a problem. So instead it's Christmas cards with smiling faces and Facebook posts to design to capture the perfect American family and lies upon lies upon lies when anyone asks how they're all doing. So do you know what this does to the psyches of the family members who are struggling, and especially younger family members? They feel shamed and confused about their state of unease. They are feeling the correct thing, and yet the people who are their role models are acting and telling them to act like there's no problem. Carl Jung said the psyche does not suffer deception well. So we know when things are not okay, but when we're told in the face of that that things are fine, it causes dysregulation. And then we hear things like, don't be so sensitive. Why can't you just be happy? Look at all the things we do for you. Look at all the things you have that others don't. Why are you so ungrateful? And it fucks us up. This is why 70% or so, I don't know, I just made that up, but a lot of my new clients come in and sit down. They tell me about what is so bad in their lives that they had to call a therapist for help. And then they say, oh, you know, but it's fine. It could be a lot worse. And then we need to spend the first chunk of time getting them to just accept that not everything is awesome right now. And that's okay. It's okay to say that. It's okay to feel that. And most importantly, it's okay to be validated around that. Imagine if we all felt okay about naming that something sucks and that it's hard. 
And while we're dreaming, imagine further that this is okay even if it isn't hard for someone else who is also in the mix. What if we get to struggle and we don't have to justify that struggle to anyone else? What if our struggle was just accepted as true for us and we could receive support around that? Some of this is born out of arrogance, I think. Like if a daughter calls out something as scary or hurtful and the mother does not experience it that way, then often mom will disregard the child's position as being overly dramatic or false. This doesn't fix the daughter's problem. Quite the opposite. It compounds those feelings and it drives them deeper where they start to get mixed up with that child's sense of self. And that's when the true mental health issues start to germinate and grow. So if instead the mom could put her fucking ego down for a minute and say, wow, okay, I hear that you're scared or hurt. And I'll be honest, like, I'm not getting that, but I believe that this is true for you right now. So let's talk about that and see what we can do about it. That validation changes everything. And I feel like I say this a million times a day, but I'll say it again. Validation does not equal agreement. You can disagree with someone and still validate their position. Lack of validation is it's probably at the root of most of the anxiety and depression issues that I see. And the hard part is that once someone has felt invalidated for years, getting them to actually accept real, true validation is a monumental task. Anyway, as usual, we're running down all kinds of rabbit holes here. Let's take a call. And please be aware that we are going to be talking about suicide and suicidal ideation and how you can intervene. And so if that's not something you want to be in on, if that's going to freak you out or ruin your day, just switch this off now and I'll catch you on the next episode. Hi, Rowan. As a former massage therapist and now a mental health professional, there's probably no better person to answer my question. My question is about being a mandatory reporter. Are massage therapists mandatory reporters? Who is? And who do you report things to if you are? I am a massage therapist in another state, and I know laws vary a lot from state to state, but this is something that came up during massage, massage school, and now I'm confused after years in practice. So if you could speak to that, that would be great. Lots of stressed out people tell me lots of crazy things and I just wanted you to kind of speak to that because you have the platform. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for the call. So this is, this is a gray area. Um, and even, you know, I mean, I'm clearly a mandated reporter and it's clearly stated in all of the social work guidelines and scope of practice and rules and regulations and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, I don't remember in grad school there being a whole lot of information about exactly what that means, exactly what's reportable and what's not, and exactly who the reporting agencies are. Most of that information I gained through internships and jobs that I had where that became evident as, as those things popped up. Um, so I did a quick Google search. Um, it doesn't look – well, certainly in the state of Colorado – uh, there's a long list of professionals who are considered to be mandatory reporters. And this includes medical, dental, behavioral health providers, film developers, and veterinarians. Those two I had to think about for a second, but film developers probably see all kinds of fucked up shit, or they did when people actually used film. Um, and animal abuse and neglect is a strong indicator that they may be, there may be abuse of humans going on in the same household. So those make sense to think about for a second. Um, the list also includes physical therapists and chiropractors, but 
does not specifically name massage therapists. And again, this may not be the case in all states. Um, and so if you're a massage therapist in another state, I would urge you to kind of look and see what the rules and guidelines are. Um, and this, this in just sort of full disclosure, there was a Facebook thread uh, in a group that I'm part of that where there were a bunch of massage therapists talking about this specific thing and specifically around suicidal ideation. Um, and so I want to touch on that because I think it's important. Um, and it also suicidal ideation is one of those things. It's also kind of a weird area with mandated reporting. So in general, mandated reporting deals with child or elder sexual or physical abuse. And if you suspect that those things are happening, then you're, you're obligated to report those things to the authorities, either uh, child or elder protective services or to the police department. Suicidal ideation is a little bit different. Um, even though it does deal with imminent harm to oneself, um, it's just not as cut and dried as if you hear about abuse. Um, and so that's why I want to kind of get into the, the details of that a little bit. Um, so yes, I was a massage therapist. Um, there's a lot of debate inside the massage community about what is and is not outside the scope of practice. Um, and that's a problem. I mean, I think it's a, the whole massage school educational component and what different massage schools choose to include and not include in their curriculum is a problem. Uh, in my case, I don't recall any discussion, let alone specific training in my massage school on recognizing the signs of self-harm and suicidal ideation. I do recall quite a lot of training on how massage flushes toxins out of the body, which is absolute and complete bullshit. And if you're shocked by that statement and think I'm wrong, please email me with a peer-reviewed study that lists what those specific toxins are, how they get released by squeezing a muscle, and where those said toxins come from and go to. But anyway, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> um, but maybe that time in school for me and for probably everybody else could have been better spent on some mental health first aid training, which by the way, is an actual thing. Uh, I think it's like a registered trademarked thing. Um, but those trainings tend to have a pretty good reputation and you can Google mental health first aid, uh, and see what trainings are available. Some of them are online. Um, and if you're a human that works with other humans, I think it's a good idea to get some kind of training in that. So in terms of scope of practice, I think it's worth digging in a little here. Um, and I'm going to play both sides of the fence, so just bear with me. I'm going to use massage therapists as an example, but this can be applied to just about any medical or behavioral health professional. So on the one hand, we see people who see themselves as the final authority on everything, and especially things that they have no business meddling with. So they puff themselves up for one reason or another. Hello, chiropractors who call yourselves doctors and massage therapists who push essential oils for everything from migraines to cancer. Stay in your lane, bro. As a psychotherapist, I get clients asking me all the time about medications, and I try very hard to stay in my zone. I am not a medical professional. I'm a behavioral health provider. Those things are not the same thing, nor should they be. It's important to know where your scope is. Um, I mentioned this before. I'm also not a fan of general practitioners who prescribe psych meds, especially if those patients are not under the care of a mental health care expert who that doc is in regular contact with. Because I know those docs aren't spending more than 10 minutes with those patients, and that's not enough time to accurately assess a mental health issue. 
So, okay, so that's one side of the fence where all those folks who think they know everything about everything. Let's talk about the other side. And this dovetails in with that imposter complex stuff that I've been talking about recently. Sometimes we hear or see something that causes us concern. And then we second guess ourselves because it's not exactly within our comfort zone. And in my opinion, and really that's all this is, but since this is my podcast, you know, that's pretty much all you're going to get anyway. So my opinion is that it's really all in the approach. You can inquire about something in a way that does not give the impression that you consider yourself an authority and especially with mental health issues. You can even name that you're inquiring as a concerned human and not as a massage therapist or a teacher or a plumber or whatever hat you happen to be wearing at the time. You get to take that hat off and ask if someone is okay, just human to human. Okay, so for all my massage therapist peeps that are listening and for anybody else who's in a position where they come into contact with other people but they're not mental health providers, I'm going to give you kind of the cliff notes version of what you should have been taught in school. Um, so for massage therapists, you see almost every square inch of your client's bodies with some obvious exceptions. Most of the time, if someone has a mark from something that they don't want to talk about, they will not come to you until it's healed. They're not going to show that to you if they don't want to talk about it. So it's worth considering that if a client has marks from, let's say like recent cutting or burning or some odd bruising or other indications that something has happened to their bodies, and especially something that may have been self-inflicted, it may be that they actually want you to see that. That may be their way of tipping their hands to see if anyone gives a shit. And I believe strongly that it's okay to ask about that. Worst case scenario is that they get offended and leave. Actually, I take that back. Worst case scenario is that you don't ask about it, and that's the last straw for them, and they go home and kill themselves. If that were to happen, I'm not saying it would be your fault. That's still the choice that they are making. What I'm saying is that you may have an opportunity to intervene in a way that makes all the difference. And you can do this in a way that does not feel like it's outside your scope of practice. If you inquire about something and your client gets defensive, take it down a notch, not up. So if you say after the massage is over and your client is closed, and by the way, that's kind of step one of being a good human, you don't dig into potentially emotionally charged stuff while your client is naked on the table. There's too much of a power differential there. So please don't do that. But after they're up and dressed and you're back in the room, you say, hey, Martha, I noticed some marks on your thigh that look like recent cuts. I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I just wanted to check in about that. And then you shut the fuck up and listen. Now, you haven't accused her of self-harming. You haven't accused her of being emotionally unstable. You're just asking what's up. If she flips out and acts offensive or offended and defensive, then you can dial it back. You apologize. You let her know you're just worried. You didn't mean to offend her. What you do not do is ramp it up and lecture her on the relationship between self-harming and suicide and blah, 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 because then you're outside your scope of practice. And self-harming and suicide do have a correlation at times, but more often than not, self-harming is not necessarily an indicator of suicidal ideation. So, okay. So on the other hand, if she breaks down and cries and says she's struggling, make sure you have some good therapists cards on hand to give her people that you trust. If she says she's working with a therapist and acts kind of embarrassed, just say, okay, cool. I'm just, I'm sorry. Things are hard for you right now. And I'm glad you're talking with someone. Those are all good things on your part and they're not outside your scope and you haven't stepped over a line. You're just inquiring as a caring human. Hey, are you okay? If on the other hand, you say while your client is naked and vulnerable on your table, oh my God, look at these cuts on your leg. Are you suicidal? I think I need to tell someone about this. 
then that's not okay. You have to gauge the timing and tone, and you have to trust your gut. Okay, so that's more about seeing something physically that concerns you. Let's talk about what happens if your client is talking about suicide. So massage therapists in general, and hopefully create a space where the client lets down and allows themselves to be vulnerable. You're giving your body over to another person for an hour. That's a big deal. And this can lead some people to talk about things that they might not otherwise share. So let's say your client starts talking and it starts feeling to you like they're in a place where they might be a danger to themselves. Again, do not engage with that while they're on the table. Let them talk. Know that they're safe in that moment. They're under your care. They're not going anywhere. Just pour all of the love you can muster into your work. Do your thing. And then after the massage is over and you're back in the room with them, have a seat. Get on their level. Ask them to sit if they're not sitting. If they're sitting on the table and you're seated and maybe your head is a little lower than theirs, that's even better. You want to like downplay the power situation as much as possible. And then you just look them in the eye and you ask them if they are having suicidal thoughts. Don't ask if they want to hurt themselves. Be direct. Are you suicidal? Do you want to die? You would be surprised at the amount of information someone will give you if you ask directly. And keep in mind that you're not really acting as massage therapist at this point. You've moved on from there. You're acting as a fellow human who has heard this person saying something that has scared you and concerned you. So ask if they're suicidal. And if they say something affirmative, like yes, or maybe, or I guess, or even I'm not sure, then you need to keep asking questions. Think of it as a flow chart where you kind of have, you know, questions. And then given that response, you're going to ask more questions or, or kind of back off. So the next question is, do you have a plan and how would you do it? Do you know how you would do it? Again, be direct and see what they say. Usually this question will be the indicator between imminent danger and more sort of passive suicidal ideation. So if they say, no, I can never really do it, or I could never do that to my family, or I'm afraid of death, then you can start breathing again and hand off those cards of those therapists and let them know that you think it's a good idea to talk to someone. If on the other hand, they tell you what their plan is, then there's more questions you need to ask. The next question would be, do you have the means to carry it out? So if they talk about hanging themselves, you would ask what they think they would use to do that, and do they have that available? Same thing with guns or pills. And then you ask if they have a time frame. Do you feel like you would do this today? Get curious. Get all the info you can. If they keep answering in the affirmative, then you do need to take action. And at that point, it doesn't matter if you are considered a mandated reporter or not. You have a human in front of you that's in danger. And so in my opinion, you need to act and you need to say, hey, thank you for telling me all this. I'm really worried about you. Would you be willing to talk with someone today to see if you might feel better? Get them to an ER or a mental health facility. You don't need to and shouldn't drive them yourself, but you can see if they're willing to call a friend or a family member. Get them hooked up with some other person before they leave your office. See if they're willing to call a suicide crisis line um, while they're there with you in the office. If they're hesitant about that, ask them if you could call that crisis line and just have them in the room with you. Make sure you have that number handy so you're not like trying to Google some suicide hotline thing. Um, if they blow out of this conversation and they just take off or they refuse help and leave, then Again, my opinion is that you should call the police and tell them the information that you have on them and ask them to do a safety check. And again, you're not acting 
necessarily as a massage therapist here. You're acting as a private citizen who has knowledge that someone may be in imminent danger. Um, it may be a good idea just on a business side to have a line in your paperwork and in your intake paperwork that says that you will break confidentiality and disclose the client's name and address if you have reason to believe they're in imminent danger. Um, but that's only because you happen to have the very useful home address on that form. Okay, so that's a lot, and it might feel really scary and overwhelming to ask all those questions, but I want to be really clear. In everything I said a minute ago, there are gates that you're passing through with this person. You're not just firing questions off regardless of the answer and like kind of berating them. You're just opening the door, and if they've been talking about suicide while you're working on them, then they're the ones who opened that door. And then you're just moving with them step by step. And again, you're not assessing them for suicide in your role as a care provider. You're trying to figure out if they're safe to leave your presence because they have opened a conversation with you about where they're at. And once that happened, all the hats come off and you're just a concerned human. If you have a relationship with a mental health provider, call them as soon as your client leaves, download all of this, let them help you figure it out. Make sure that you're caring for yourself around this because having these conversations with people can really fuck your head up and you need to be able to take care of yourself as well. And then just a final kind of side note, you will never, ever tip someone into a suicidal place by asking questions about whether they're suicidal or not. You're not that powerful. Don't be afraid to ask direct questions. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Therapy for Humans. Thank you for joining me. If you'd like to call into the podcast, we have two callers in a row. It's like a miracle. I don't think that hasn't ever happened. So let's keep the ball rolling. You can call in at one eight four four Durango. That's one eight four four three eight seven two six four six. If email is more your style, you can email me at Rowan at therapyforhumanspodcast.com. And if you'd like to see me live and in person for therapy, you can get in touch with me through DurangoPsychotherapy.com. And you can also call me at 970-903-3893. You can text that number too. So I hope you have a great couple of weeks. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. <laughs>